Welcome. Please accept Jim and John's invitation to join them as they once again ask each other, What do you think about... Hey, John, what do you think about the idea of window areas? Specifically, paranormal window areas. To me, my mom first told me about this kind of thing when I was like nine or ten years old, I guess. And she was reading about mysterious disappearances, how people suddenly just vanish right into thin air. And uh, she thought they had fallen into other dimensions via holes or maybe a rift in the universe, right? And uh, it never occurred to me as a child that if these holes existed, that things from the other side could fall into our universe, right? Is that the kind of thing you're talking about, Jim? Yeah, exactly. It's cool that your mom was reading about them. I was just sitting thinking while you were saying that. It's like, I bet my mom never read about uh, anything paranormal. No, my mom wasn't all of this. I come by it honest. That's exactly what uh, I'm going to try to talk about here. Cool. Let's do it. First, let's define a window area. I believe it was John Keel in his book, Strange Creatures from Time and Space. He's also the guy that wrote the Mothman prophecies that we've kind of ragged on in the past. Not us. That created the term window area. And he used it to describe portals in the fabric of creation that allow denizens from extra-dimensional universes to penetrate into our own space-time continuum. Keel also had a name for the beings coming into our worlds via these windows. Ultra-terrestrials. So why did he invent this term called window area? Because we had the word portal forever and a day. Uh, he probably just wanted his own... Uh, Nomenclature, so he can't be wrong. Yeah, his own. Yeah, right. Right? If you make up the word, then nobody knows what the hell you're talking about, except you. Ha ha. Can't be wrong. So, in layman's terms, also known as terms that Jim can understand, window areas are holes in our universe that open into parallel universes and allow intercourse betwixt the two. Mm hmm. And as I said earlier, I realized that. John and I have both disparaged uh, some of Keel's writings. Uh, and I'll do it again if you ever talk about it in the future. But that's not saying that it, everything he believed is incorrect. I mean, even a broken clock is correct twice a day, right? Yeah, not if it's digital. I mean, if the display isn't working, it's not showing anything, right? Many of these window areas have a uh, prolonged history of odd commotions taking place in the vicinity around them. And sometimes that history extends over decades. According to the website spiritseekersblog.org, these places often have multiple phenomena occurring. One phenomenon merging in an almost seamless manner into another seemingly separate phenomenon. UFO witnesses often encounter poltergeist or psychokinetic activity after a sighting. Crop circles are often accompanied by orbs and or livestock and pet mutilations. So, John, can you work with that explanation? Well, I can, as long as we don't give too much credit to John Keel. I'll try not to talk about him too much. So, what is it that happens when one of these windows opens? 
It seems that any number of Fordian activity can be experienced, including UAPs, which are UFOs. Yep, we don't call them UFOs anymore. Strange creatures like Sasquatch or mysterious big cats. I'm not talking about house cats of unusual size, rather felines that are similar to black panthers. And people disappear without a trace. Hey, Mom. And sometimes ghosts are seen in the area. Now that we've defined the phenomenon of window areas, let's move on to actual locations of such portals and a description of what paranormal activities have occurred to identify them as such. The website Gaia.com claims that, uh-oh, I'm going to say the name, John Keel proposed the idea that window areas are in existence throughout the world, connecting our reality with parallel dimensions. Well, then they didn't do any homework at all because this notion of portals connecting dimensions has been around forever and a day. It's a common enough trope in sci-fi and fantasies. So, I mean, I don't know how he can, they can claim he made it up other than the use of the word window area. One of the locations where a window area exists seems to be Barmouth, Wales, which is a coastal town. Okay. On March 7th, 1922, Brian Holding took off from Chester, England, in his Avro 504 biplane for a short flight to Wales. Once his business was completed, he took off, intending to return to Chester. Sure. His plane was seen around 11 a.m. near Langolan, Wales. Are you sure that's how you say it in Welsh? I was just going to apologize <laughs> for all of our Welsh listeners. L-L-A-N-G-O-L-L-E-N. I'm sure they're probably aware of what I'm talking about. This location in Wales, I won't say it again, is a mere 23 miles or so from Chester, England. So it shouldn't take too long to fly there, you'd think. Well, back then, I don't know what a biplane did, but maybe 50 or 60 miles an hour. So you know, 25 minutes. Unfortunately, the pilot and his aircraft never reached the Chester airfield. While a massive search was made, neither holding nor nut nor bolt from his airplane was ever recovered. Enthusiasts claim that holding flew through an open aerial window and into an alternate universe. Uh, well, you got to do something because it's boring just to say he crashed. According to darkstories.com, reports of peculiar, <laughs> I can say it right this time. Yeah, that's a miracle right there. Reports of peculiar lights flying in formation over North Wales had come in the weeks just prior to Holding's flight. The area has hosted several unexplained occurrences over the years and is regarded as a major window area. The epicenter of the window is Barmouth, a Welsh coastal town where... Geologists have detected zones of complex magnetic anomalies which are of unknown origins. At least that's according to darkstories.com. The website claims that the earliest report of unearthly goings on in this region can be found in the year 1692. No, that's not possible. 
That's not possible. John Keel didn't define the term yet, so couldn't possibly have happened. At which time, a fiery object landed near Harwich and proceeded to terrorize the town's inhabitants for several months until it finally zoomed back into the skies. I love that. Yeah, what the fuck do you think that could be? Yeah, a fiery object that terrorizes the town's inhabitants. I, I, what the, what, how does it do that? I mean, you stand there, you look at it, go, oh, it's on fire. And then you don't go near it. Maybe it's like one of H.G. Wells' uh, War of the Worlds tripods or something like that. Uh, the site goes on to list incidents of strange blue and white lights descending to Earth in the same locality in the years 1869, 1875, and 1877. But the most remarkable incidents occurred in 1905 when there was an outbreak of, hold your enthusiasm, John, concentrated UFO activity. Oh, dude, I'm going to have to check this out. Interestingly, the Barmouth window area is dotted with ancient mounds and landmarks, as well as several megalithic monuments. Some believe that the Neolithic residents of the Barmouth area were well aware of the area's odd nature and uh, erected menhirs and monoliths in awe and respect of the paranormal nature of the land. Hey, vocabulary boy, uh, what's a menhir? I mean, of course, I know what a menhir is, but I'm asking for a friend. It's a rock formation monument thing that the ancient people erected. Isn't it also man-shaped? I don't believe it's uh, man-shaped. Let's get the official from MW.com. A single, upright, rough monolith, usually of prehistoric origin. I was thinking of those little things that they build, you know, pile of rocks look like men. But I guess that's not what it is. I, yeah, I'm not, I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't know what those are called. I thought those were men here. I know I don't have many men hairs anymore because yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean it's all migrated down to my back and ass, but uh, yeah. Another window area is found in Canuck Chase, United Kingdom, according to coastcoast.com dot com. In the uh, twenty twelve October twenty eighth show, Nick Redfern identified this area as a definitive window area in which there are UAP reports, abductions, and alien contact encounters, as well as an abundance of sightings of big cats and ghostly black dogs. Furthermore, Redfern revealed in 2007, several credible witnesses reported seeing a werewolf-like creature near an old cemetery in the woods there. While the creature would initially appear as a large wolf, Redfern said that the witnesses who glimpsed the creature claimed that once the beast saw them, it would rise up onto its hind legs and swiftly run off into the forest on two feet. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So I'm assuming it's to be assumed that this werewolf is uh, one of the ultra-terrestrials who made his way through one of these portals. In 1966, Presque Isle State Park in Erie, ooh, Erie, how appropriate, Pennsylvania, 
different spelling. I mean, like the lake instead of scary. Revealed itself to be a window area in the United States in what came to be designated as Case 10798 of Project Blue Book and has the designation of unknown as far as that research was concerned. According to an article in the August 2nd, 1996 edition of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, local police and an Air Force official were investigating a quote-unquote flying saucer sighting reported by a teenage couple, Betty Jean Clem, who was 16, of Jamestown, New York, and Douglas J. Tibbetts, 18, of Greenhurst, New York. The two were parked on the beach at Presque Isle State Park when they saw a silvery, metallic object approach out of the north. The object landed between two trees about 300 yards from their car, and the automobile began vibrating as the craft landed, according to Betty. Now, is that a euphemism? That's what I was wondering, too, because if you see the car rocking, don't bother yeah, knocking. exactly, and that usually means the craft is landing, I think. Park police had been out earlier to help the couple free their vehicle from the sand. So I doubt if they were happy to be caught out yet again by the same couple for a fucking UFO sighting. Yeah, no kidding. The officers and Tibbets went to the landing area. And good for them. I mean, they were brave enough to, to go check it out. Well, you got to go check it out. And as a movie stereotype... They left Betty alone in the car. Well, of course, that's how she gets the guy with that one hand is a claw. So he can come up and get the claw gets left behind, you know. While no flying saucer was found, the police said they did find triangular impressions in the sand 10 to 12 feet apart. Each was 18 inches wide and 6 to 8 inches deep. While they were gone, Betty claimed that a monster appeared near the car. She said it was a large creature like a gorilla, but I never saw an animal like it before. So, how's that for high strength? That's pretty strange. That is. A window opened, allowed a UAP through, and the craft in turn released a Sasquatch-like beast into our dimension. According to John Keel, from his book Strange Creatures from Time and Space, Point Pleasant, West Virginia is a typical window area. Well, of course, because that's where uh, the Mothman was, right? Right. It is completely erroneous to blame the collapse of the rickety old silver bridge on flying saucers or men in black. But the intense UFO activity in the TNT area on the night of the disaster does suggest some intangible relationship. In other words, unmeasurable and undetectable, and I'm blaming the word rickety. Keel went on to say, Our in-depth investigation in several other windows in the United States have uncovered manifestations of phenomena identical to the things we found in Point Pleasant. When the flying saucers arrive, they bring with them strange invisible forces, frightening screams in the night, and luminous phantoms. We've mentioned the Mothman in two past episodes, so I'm not going to dig into it. But the symptoms plaguing the Gala Police Point Pleasant area just prior to the uh, activity lead uh, directly to uh, a window area diagnosis for the region. 
Well, especially if you're the guy inventing the word. Yeah, I'd, I'd throw it around as much as I could. Yeah, me too. Perhaps the most notorious window area on our Earth is the Bermuda Triangle. Yep, I was wondering when we were going to talk about that one, because that seems like tailor-made for this. Oh, it is. This triangular space stretches from Puerto Rico to Florida and has Bermuda as its apex. Within this demarcation, thousands of unexplained disappearances have occurred. This section of the ocean was home to odd instances dating back to the time of Christopher Columbus's first famous voyage. Columbus noted in his log of the journey that he witnessed strange lights in October of 1492 as recorded in the October 11th entry of the Journal of the First Voyage of Columbus. And that entry reads, The Admiral, at ten in the previous night, being on the castle of the poop, saw a light, though it was so uncertain that he could not affirm it was land. He called Pero Gutierrez, a gentleman of the king's bedchamber, and said that there seemed to be a light and that he should look at it. He did so and saw it. The admiral said the same to Rodrigo Sanchez of Segovia, whom the king and queen had sent with the fleet as inspector, but he could see nothing because he was not in a place whence anything could be seen. After the admiral had spoken, he saw the light once or twice, and it was like a wax candle rising and falling. Funny thing, people seem to try to make a lot more out of this entry than seems to exist. I saw sites where they added claims that the lights buzzed the ships and came up out of the ocean and looked like classic saucer-shaped UFOs and all that nonsense. But It's pretty much, you know, good enough, though, to say that, what's that weird light? I don't know. Do you see it? Yeah, I see it. There's nothing there. There's no land, right? So what's the light? I don't know. Yeah, the facts are, are good enough. They don't need the bullshit trappings. Right. American author Vincent Gaddis coined the term Bermuda Triangle in a February 1964 Argosy magazine article. Notable disappearances in the area are, in March 1918, the USS Cyclops and her crew disappeared without a trace. And in December 1945, Flight 19 was lost within the confines of the Triangle. I mean, everybody knows that story, right? Yeah. The, I, well, I think they should anyway. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably uh, know about both of those. Another locale thought to be a window area is the Bridgewater Triangle. This 200-square-mile tract of land located in southeastern Massachusetts sports spook lights, UFOs, disappearances, Bigfoot, giant serpents, and... Puckwudgies. Ooh, Puckwudgies. Uh, you know, I don't think we've talked about Puckwudgies in an episode yet. Nah, no, we haven't. Yeah, they're very cool. You know, Native American lore describes them as little people. They're like two or three feet tall, you know, and they can shape shift and they are not overly fond of humans. They can also appear or disappear at will. Uh, so these cryptids are best left alone if you see one. Right. Yeah, they, uh, uh, not to get off on a tangent, but let's get off on a tangent. They'll lure you into the uh, woods. And get you lost. At, and then you don't come back. Yeah. yeah kind of like being, uh, what they call it, Middle Ages, pixie lead or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, pixie yeah. lead. 
Back to the uh, Bridgewater Triangle, this term was coined by Lauren Coleman in his 1983 book, Mysterious America, as a nod to the Bermuda Triangle. James Edward Tedford, from our third episode, mm-hmm. the one about the mysterious disappearances, yep. he disappeared in this Bridgewater Triangle. He was the old guy who was on the bus. Right, and they never found him. And then, uh, have you ever heard of the Skinwalker Ranch? It's also known the Sherman Ranch. Sure, I've been watching that on uh, Discovery. Yeah. Oh, have you really? I, I, I didn't. I didn't dip my toe into that one. It's pretty weak. It's a gentle introduction to the topic for my wife. Okay. For those who don't know, this is a 512-acre ranch in southwestern Utah. This locust seems to have a paranormal revolving door rather than a window. Incidents here include a supposed 50-year history of UFO activity, a bottomless well that one of the owners was using as a garbage dump, Yep, and he could never fill it up. So he was happy with that, right? Right. Mutilated livestock. Yes. Orbs flying around, and uh, strange creatures, including this wolf-like beast that was impervious to gunfire. But things don't just come out of these windows when they open, as we'll find out after this interlude extolling the benefits of Anchor Podcasting. We're back, and as I implied earlier, we're going to slip open the sash, heave a leg over the sill, and clamber through one of these windows to see what might lie beyond. John, you should like this. I'm going to talk about UFOs for a minute. Oh, hit me, baby. According to the website, darkstories.com, that we referenced earlier, one of the most unusual aspects of the UFO phenomenon is the apparent existence of specific geographical areas where sightings of UFOs and paranormal activity seem to be unusually regular. These so-called window areas, as the ufologists call them, are thought to be in the vicinity of dimensional gateways or portals through which UFOs pass from their home planets. Some think that the UFOs do not travel through normal interstellar space on their journeys, but take an instantaneous shortcut by traversing a region of higher dimensional space that science fiction writers have termed hyperspace. The term hyperspace is not a scientific one, It was thought up by the 20th century science fiction writers Kirk Meadowcraft in his story The Invisible Bubble, published in 1928. And then it was used again by John W. Campbell in his 1931 story Islands of Space. Well, that term might not be a scientific one, but it is a mathematical one. If you took any linear algebra, you'd probably have come across it, along with hyperplanes and hypersurfaces and such like that. Pretty much just stick hyper in front of a geometric term, and you'll kind of likely find a match. In 1962, science did embrace the concept. Well, at least some scientists did so. John A. Wheeler and Robert Fuller released their co-written Causality and Multiple Connected Spacetime. They used the term superspace, though, rather than hyperspace, but same difference. Back to the Dark Stories website, this paper 
introduced the concept of superspace, which was described as an immense but separate version of space that permeated every part of the universe. Journeys taken through superspace would, due to its nature, be much more rapid than the usual route, because the ordinary laws of physics would be considerably altered there. Well, uh, again, I think they're using the mathematical version of that term, super. Just for a second here, any given space has a dimension, right? Three-dimensional space, four-dimensional space, whatever. So let's call that N, right? If space has dimensionality N plus one, then it's a superspace. And if it has dimensionality N minus one, then it's a hyperspace. I'm just being pedantic and giving Mr. Wheeler and Mr. Fuller their just due. I mean, um, I'm sure these guys know what super and hyper mean. Some paranormologists... Is that the correct term, do you think, John? Sure. Why not? Call themselves what they want. Believe that this hyperspace comprises the space beyond the window areas. It's basically a shortcut from the ultra-terrestrials portion of the universe to our section. I guess it's kind of like a, a wormhole? Yeah, why not? Now, one cool thing about this hyperspace theory is this. Since it's out there and there are portals in it, we can use these windows ourselves. One such instance is supposed to have occurred on December 4th, 1970, when a guy named Bruce Garnon flew his beach bonanza from the Andros Airport in the Bahamas to Palm Beach, Florida. Have you ever heard this story before? Uh, I have not. Ah, well... Gernon was flying with his father and a guest as his passengers. Over the Bermuda Triangle, he noticed that he was approaching an odd cloud formation. While trying to execute a bit of quick piloting maneuvers to avoid entering this approaching fog, he saw another odd cloud formation to his rear. The two clouds quickly engulfed the plane, and while within their misty midst, Garanin saw that he was inside a sort of a tunnel formation inside the clouds. According to GreatestUnsolvedMysteries.com, as the aircraft progressed through the tunnel, it formed a vortex and spiral shapes became apparent. Weightlessness was experienced and even the compass of the craft appeared to be malfunctioning. Eventually, they did escape from this cloud tunnel. And they soon learned that they had arrived at their destination after a flight of only 47 minutes or so. Uh, some sites claim that this flight lasted 35 minutes. But according to Garnon, the flight should have taken about 75 minutes. So, idiot me, I started digging into the speeds of this plane and the 1970 to 1994 models of this aircraft had a cruising speed of 172 knots, which is about 198 miles per hour. So that's about one mile every 30 seconds. Yeah, it's the other way around, right? So it's it's about a mile every uh, 15 seconds, 20 seconds, somewhere in there. I googled the distance from Andros Airport to Palm Beach, and it's about 169 miles not the 250 miles that I found listed on several websites. That depends on if it's as the arrow flies or do you have to you know, turn because you're not allowed to fly over this Air Force base or something that's in the way. I mean, you know, flight distances aren't always straight. If the distance 
really was this uh, 250 miles, and the plane was traveling at 198 miles an hour, it would take about 75 minutes and 45 seconds, like Garnon claims. But if the distance is really only 169 miles, it would take 51 minutes and 15 seconds of travel time. That's correct. At 198 miles per hour, Gernon should have only traveled 155 miles in 47 minutes, not 169 miles. Yep. And it just goes on from there. If the 35 minutes is true... He should have only covered 115 miles, right? Right, right. So if he completed the flight in 47 minutes, is that really miraculous enough to raise any eyebrows? I mean, if my math is correct, and God knows it probably is not, he only arrived four minutes and 15 seconds early. I mean, fuck, a good tailwind would give you that, Well, well, yeah, well, let's talk about that for a second, right? Uh, He talks about going into clouds, and there's a vortex, and all this this weightlessness, and all this other bullshit, right? Um, He's clearly flying into a storm of some kind. And what do we know about storms? They're low-pressure areas, Right. So the air in that area is less dense than the air around it. So he's going to have less friction. He's going to have less bumping against stuff in front of him to affect his speed. And with the tailwind, I'd buy easy that he'd get four minutes of uh, speed time. I'm sorry we pissed all over everyone who takes Gernon's story at face value. He claims that he went through a window and all this other shit that shortened the trip. and. I think Mother Nature shortened the trip. I think so, too. But maybe I missed something. Uh, Maybe I got the distances wrong, and I don't know. If anyone finds a flaw with the story as I related it, feel free to contact us via email and bitch me out. W-D-O-U-T-A at gmail.com. Another story happened in September of 2009. When this guy, he goes by the name of James Richards on the internet, claims to have visited an alternate universe. I like this story. I'll give a quick watered-down version as he relates it on TheBeatlesNeverBrokeUp.com. While driving to his home in Livermore, California, from Turlock, California, Richards decided to take a scenic detour through the Del Puerto Canyon, which is situated west of Turlock. While driving through said canyon, Richard's dog got fussy, so he pulled into a parking area to let the dog out to take a whiz. Well, the dog, being a dog, took off after a rabbit. Not wanting to lose his pet, Richard's followed and ended up stepping into a rabbit hole, tripping himself up and falling to the ground. Kind of like that guy did that was running in front of the buggy that was racing it, remember? Right. He tripped and fell and he didn't hit the ground. Right, but Richards did hit the ground, and he must have bashed his noggin on a rock because he says he lost consciousness. When he awoke, he was not in the Del Puerto Canyon, but rather in a room, quote, with some furniture and electronics in it, as well as an unusual-looking electronic machine. His head had also been bandaged up. He gets up to look out the window, but before he can do so, the door to the room opens. In scampers his dog and a young man who introduces himself as Jonas. 
Jonas explained that he found Richards lying unconscious with his dog barking at his side. Richard asked the guy, where am I? Jonas answered, about 20 feet away from where I found you. Now, Richard thought that this was some prime bullshit because there were no houses within 20 miles of where he pulled over to let the dog out. Jonas then continued to spread his grade A manure, stating that he was about to reveal some very shocking and incredibly unbelievable truth on Richard's. Jonas had traveled to Richard's and our dimension via the strange machine in the room. He just happened to find Richards in an unconscious state, so he brought him home for treatment. Jonas added that he normally doesn't take outsiders through a portal, but he made an exception due to Richards' apparent need for medical attention. Richards began questioning his host about interdimensional travel, since all he knew about the topic was YouTube videos uh, put out there by Michio Kaku. Yeah, he's fun. Oh yeah, I dig him a lot. Yeah, I got. I've read. I've actually owned a couple of his books. They're 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 good reads. I'm sure he's ecstatic at being mentioned on our podcast. Oh, we'll have to send him a link. As well as on this Beatles Never Broke Up website. It turned out that the machines for traveling between dimensions are readily available to the purchasing public and are pretty popular, even though this machine can be dangerous enough to cause death. In this Jonas's flavor of the universe. During the 1950s, the government had the choice of funding either a space exploration program or a parallel dimension exploration. Cooler heads prevailed, and they went with the uh, Project Parallel Dimension. Sure. The government, following some research, came up with a menu of safe worlds to which one could travel. Interdimensional travel agencies naturally came next. Oh, and it turned out that Jonas was an explorer for one of these agencies who was, quote, looking into new uncharted dimensions. So the two started talking about the similarities and differences existing between their mirror worlds. Yada, yada, yada. The Beatles come up, as they naturally do. In all conversations, right? Right. And lo and behold... It turned out that they did, in fact, exist in both dimensions. Jonas goes on to tell Richards that he and his brother just saw the Beatles perform. It turned out that there's still a viable band making music. It also turned out that Jonas had several homemade cassettes of Beatles albums, including ones that were not released in our version of Earth as would any guest who has been saved from death by a visitor from a parallel plane of existence. Richard stole one of these not-his-earth cassette tapes when Jonas left the room. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's setting a good record for the rest of us, isn't he? Right, yeah. After uh, a lunch that Jonas returned with that had foods similar to our own, except differing brand names and colors, the ketchup was purple, Richard said... I gotta be getting back home. Hey man, I've had purple ketchup. Do you remember when Heinz was playing with different colors of ketchup? Yeah, they had green and purple. Purple. Yeah, and, yep, 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 yep. Good host that he was. Jonas took Richards to the machine, opened the portal, and Richards stepped through, returning to his own plane of existence. As proof of his experience, 
He posted the contents of the Beatles cassette that he stole online at thebeatlesneverbrokeup.com. The album's title is Everyday Chemistry. The songs are listed there, and you can listen to each. They are shit. Oh, come on. They're not that bad. I mean, if he wasn't claiming it was the Beatles, he'd like it fine. Oh, God, no. They sucked. As a matter of fact, all they appear to be are mashups of Lennon, Harrison, and Starr's solo stuff mixed up with McCartney's work with Wings. Oh, I agree with you there, though. One of the songs entitled Jen is just an intertwining of Jet by Wings and Hard Times by Ringo Starr. Yeah, that's very true. It sounds exactly the same. Uh, I mean, even the the Jet part, right? It's just like, he's trying to say it says Jen, I guess, but it doesn't. It says Jet. And the song Soldier Boy is just a crappy remix of Wings' Listen to What the Man Said. And another crappy remix is Days Like These, which mutilates John Lennon's Nobody Told Me. I do not believe that if the Beatles had stayed together, that they would have written any of their solo stuff, at least not in exactly the forms that we had it. You know, I mean, all right, people can hate me, but I think they were better as a whole than they were as individuals. As a group than they were individually. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with that statement. Actually. It's like you and I, you need somebody to play off of. And I, I just don't think John Lennon would have put up with, uh, listen to what the man said or, you know, yeah, I just, I don't buy it. Richards concludes his post recounting his strange adventure with this. I'll post some more about my experience in the coming days, but I have to go to work right now, and this post is already long enough, just like this podcast episode. If anyone has any questions they want to ask me about this incident, then I've set up an email address that you can contact me at, thebeatlesneverbrokeup at yahoo.com. I'll try and answer everyone's questions as best as possible. Lastly, if there is anyone out there that has experienced anything like this, please contact me. Some of the things this guy said to me almost make me wonder if this isn't the first time dimensional travelers have been here. Of course not. He said he's an explorer. Right, yeah. I mean, he said, yeah, I've been going over to your place. I find it odd that the Beatles would exist in both dimensions as a band with the exact same members. It's just, if the Beatles are who they were, Heinz would have been who Heinz was, I would think. You know? Eh, he might have been subsumed by hunts. That could be. And like we said earlier, uh, we did have purple ketchup from Heinz from 2000 to 2006. So eat that, James Richards. Yep. There you have it, John. Window areas. I have to say this episode was a bitch to write because it was difficult to find source material. Everyone bandies the term windows area about, but no one really explains it beyond mentioning the same damn quotes concerning John Keel. Right. That's because he made up the word. If we use the word portal or interdimensional portal, there's all kinds of material out there. If you just Google the phrase window area, you get all kinds of hits, like choosing the proper window and 
opinions as to which window area ratio is best for your home and how best to dress your windows. Do you need curtains or do you need window treatments? You know the difference? About $3,000. <laughs> is that what it is? Yeah, as far as I can tell. <laughs> My poor brain was having trouble actually understanding some of the information about parallel universe. I mean, not the general concept, but the uh, nuts and bolts that held them together. So, yeah, it was, it was. It took me longer to write than I thought it would. It is still a cool topic. Yeah, it's it's gaining a lot more credence with UAP activity now. Yeah, and regular science. I just saw something on with msn.com or something just two days ago where now it was talking about the big bang and they're thinking now that a alternate universe was created at the instant of the big bang but it's going backwards in time from the direction we're going in and i mean there's a parallel universe and mm -hmm. and i can i can accept the idea of a multiverse i, I mean and and if there are other universes or dimensions or parallel worlds or whatever you call them, I can accept that the fabric between them can wear thin and be ruptured by either accident or design. And uh, these fissures, if found, could be exploited by those that discover them. Yep. There's a Harvard University uh, theoretical physicist named Lisa Randall, who does theoretical physics around the whole notion of parallel dimensions and essentially portals between the worlds. So she thinks weak areas of gravity could be explanations for these sorts of things, that gravity shapes time and space. And um, God knows what'll come of it, right? But you can find her out on the web if you look for her. Her name's Lisa, L-I-S-A, Randall, R-A-N-D-A-L-L. -L, and she teaches at Harvard. So check her out. What Do You Think About is co-written by John Gordos and Jim Dumermuth. Our theme music, In Suspense, is provided by podsummit.com. Thanks to all you listeners. If you feel like it, please take the time to rate our podcasts on your favorite listening platform or drop us a line at wdouta at gmail.com or visit our Facebook page, anchor.fm forward slash wdouta for updates on releases. And I also just recently put a list of uh, paranormal conventions that are going on this year. Ooh, ooh! I'll have to check the website. Yeah, it's uh, I I, I forget how many I have out there. It's a goodly number. Cool. So, um, go ahead. Nope, that was it. Copyright 2022 by John Gordos and Jim Dumermuth. You just brought him up, and we've mentioned the Mothman. The Mothman. Yeah, the Mothman. Mothman.